Hi, I'm Daryl Wanzer Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Rene Rocha. And this is Imagining Latinidades. So thank you so much for joining us here uh, at the uh, at this conference to you know hear what we have to say about teaching Latino Latino Latinx studies in the Midwest. So the three of us, I'm Daryl Wanzer Serrano, Ariana Ruiz, Renee Rocha. And we are all professors here at the University of Iowa. I'm the current director of the Latino Latino Studies program. Uh, Renee is the past director, and Ariana teaches like half of the classes that the program offers. Something yes, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, we do have a, a, a live audience, a, a, a lively audience uh, here <laughs> for us today. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. You know, what we'd like to do is uh, is talk a little bit about where the kind of podcast uh, comes from, uh, and then talk a little bit about where we all come from, uh, and then get into talking about some specific examples of how we engage in pedagogy that is kind of uniquely suited to teaching Latino, Latino, Latinx studies in the Midwest context. Um, so first, a bit about the uh, a bit about this program. This podcast was started as part of a uh, grant pro- uh, grant program uh, called the Mellon Sawyer Seminar. Uh, the Mellon Sawyer Seminar provides some resources to bring a bunch of speakers in. Uh, this conference's keynote speaker will be one of our speakers in the spring, uh, and in all, we're bringing in over two dozen speakers over the course of the year. Uh, we live stream uh, most of those speeches. Uh, we'll, we're also producing videos that will end up uh, online and freely available afterward, in addition to the kind of typical thing of we're planning to do an edited volume out of it. Uh, we also wanted to do something a little bit different, and that's where the podcast came in. So the podcast is kind of an opportunity for us to uh, to preview the, the scholarship of people who are coming in uh, to campus over the course of the year. Uh, it's also an opportunity to kind of review the things that we've learned from uh, from from the different speaking events that we've hosted. Um, and it's an important opportunity to engage in what I'd call kind of public scholarship, publicly engaged scholarship, right? When you're doing something like a podcast, uh, it's a much different uh, language, a different style of presentation than you would have in a kind of typical scholarly research presentation sort of setting. Um, and I think that's really important when we're, when we're talking about Latina, Latina, Latinx studies, right? The roots of which come from uh, student movement and protest. Uh, and that is, you know, it's always had a really important connection to community, right? And so it's important to both like create these spaces within the university context where, uh, where our scholarship is valued uh, and where the lives of, uh, of, 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 you know, the people and the communities that we come from are valued. Uh, but it's also important to be able to like translate that work, um, and, and discuss that, that kind of scholarship in a language that goes beyond the walls of the cat, the academy, which can be pretty exclusive. Um, and so, you know, tell quickly where, where I come from. I'm a, I'm a Boricua from Washington state, from Western Washington state. Um, and I, uh, grew up, grew up out in Western Washington. I moved to the Midwest to Indiana for graduate school. Um, and then kind of hopped around before landing back in, uh, in Iowa, in the heartland, uh, and found myself, you know, 
amidst all this exciting stuff that was happening because when I got here to the University of Iowa, uh, there was no Latino Latino Studies program, um, but there was it, my first year here an amazing symposium called the Latino Latino Midwest, uh, and that created an environment on campus, an energy on campus uh, that 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 I think pretty directly led to the formation of the Latino Latino Studies interdisciplinary minor, uh, which has since become a full-blown program uh, such that, you know, myself and Renee uh, have moved part of our kind of appointments into that program. And so it's, a, it's, it's actually a, a, a full kind of scholarly home for us or, or second home. Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to underscore um, in relationship to the Mellon Sawyer seminar um, is this was sort of years in planning, <laughs> um, or at least now we're going on our second year, the year that where it's actually everything is coming together. Um, and in those conversations, we were very much wanting to make sure that there was some sort of archive um, that that we left behind in regards to all of the different types of speakers and events that we were going to be hosting. Um, this type of, of energy and movement and um, presence by leading scholars within the field of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies um, is is somewhat rare for the University of Iowa. Um, out of the Big Ten, we were the last ones to start a Latina, Latino studies program. Um, and so it was really important for us to, again, to have some sort of tangible um, material uh, thing after all of the different types of visits uh, for future future scholarship. Um, and so that's one of the things that we're really trying to emphasize, not only by recording the different types of events, um, but also having this podcast um, as an opportunity to set up the visits that are going to be happening, as well as for us to, to chat with one another about, you know, how things are going and, and sort of futures and directions of the type of work that we want to do. Um, in terms of my background, so uh, I was, was mentioned earlier, Ariana Ruiz, I'm an assistant professor of Latina, Latino, Latinx literature and culture in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese. Um, I'm coming from Inglewood, California. Um, so first generation uh, college student, grad student, and now faculty member. Um, and really thinking about my place um, as someone from the West Coast that's coming to the Midwest um, was something that I would say my my graduate experience, I got my degree from Illinois, um, really set the stage for. And I'm sorry, I'm still working through whatever cough my three-year-old gave me. Um, <coughs> so yeah, the, yesterday's re recording was just like this of me kind of turning my head to the side so hopefully it doesn't pick up. But I'm sure I'm sure the magic of editing will help just get rid of all of that, right? This is live. Oh, oh, oh. I'm like, wait, you can't, <laughs> you, can't just, you can't just splice that out? No? I mean, I can try to, but, okay. but if I do that, then I'm also going to like edit in like other sound effects and stuff. No, no, no. We already have enough sound effects. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, that's sort of my background coming in. As was mentioned earlier, I think all of the classes that I teach count towards the minor. Um, yeah, yeah, they do. So <laughs> I have a lot of exposure um, and an investment um, within within the minor itself and seeing it grow um, and having experienced its growth as well. Uh, I'm Renee Rocha, professor of political science, and as Daryl mentioned, also holding a joint appointment in the Latino Studies program. Uh, I came here in 2006 um, as part of a Latino cluster hire, um, Omar, who's in the audience here, is also part of that cluster hire. Um, 
that pro that began sort of with a with an initiative towards sort of grow the to diversify the faculty, uh, perhaps create the energy for the for, for the creation of a of a Latino studies program, but uh, the energy for that uh, cluster hire, which initially brought me out, uh, was very top top down. It was sort of initiated by the provost's office, and we had some administrative turnover. The provost left, and. Um, you know, what we had was a typical situation in which, you know, I proceeded to be a really good assistant professor of political science. And um, I had lunch with Omar like once a year or something like that. Right. Uh, and then uh, uh, credit to him, credit to Claire Fox for after a couple of years, you know, after we had sort of navigated the tenure process for beginning to institutionalize this program, both with the events that Daryl mentioned and with um, and then sort of progressing that into the formation of the minor. Uh, I was happy to work to help uh, move that along, uh, get us to that program status over the past couple of years, get us to the point where, to where now we can have the sort of joint appointments. And I think that that's going to help sort of further institutionalize the program uh, over the next couple uh, next couple of years um, you know I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley um, South Texas another I'll, I'll, one more Omar story is uh, when we were sitting in uh, faculty orientation I don't know if you remember this uh, but you know he, uh, Omar turns to me and he, he says hey you know he knows my he knows he knows my last name and he says but by, by any chance is your dad named Rudy which is a really weird question to get asked. Um, but my father is an historian and, and, and it was a borderlands historian. Uh, and so that was a very, you know, a very weird connection to be made in day one, uh, in, in Iowa city. But, you know, I think it, 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 um, it sort of helped to sort of show how I think people, you know, two people with very similar, you know, different disciplinary experiences, but similar lived experiences, similar backgrounds had come and found ourselves and, and we're trying to bring those perspectives uh, here to the university. And so, you know, one of the th more interesting intellectual experiences for me over the past couple of years has been sort of navigating from that early life, living primarily uh, in a border area to, you know, where I've spent the bulk of my adult life, which is here, which is very firmly sort of not in, you know, not along the U.S.-Mexico border, but one in which sort of borders continue to persist in different ways and sort of understanding that, intellectualizing it and having it inform the type of uh, social science and political science I do and have me be uh, interested in ideas that I was not interested in when I came here, like ideas of, of the way in which different um, spaces have effects on the way in which sort of Latinos conceive of their ethnic identity and the way in which sort of the way in which government has interacted with that population differently within the interior versus along the border has also sort of shaped a relationship between Latinos and the state has been sort of a, a progression in my intellectual research path, which is informed very much by my lived experience here. Great. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I, I want to do to kind of like ease into us talking about some something specific that we teach or some specific approach that we have to teaching Latino, Latino, Latinx studies in the Midwest is to give a little bit of, of historical context about Iowa. And maybe you've had some of this earlier today about the history of Latinx folks at the University of Iowa a little bit. Um, 
I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a critical humanist by training, but I've, I've started getting, I think Renee's starting to rub off on me and I'm like getting really into numbers. Uh, because it's I dangerous. think, I think numbers, it is dangerous. <laughs> I don't really know how to talk about the numbers or to do math. Um, but I do know that numbers can tell an important part of the story, uh, that, sometimes the archival resources that I'm much more like comfortable with can't tell. Um, unfortunately, those numbers are kind of absent at the University of Iowa prior to 1978 because the university didn't actually start uh, preserving numbers about like Latino student enrollment here until that point. Uh, prior to that point, though, we do have good archival sources, right, particularly the student newspaper. Um, and it was in like 1970, right, that students really started organizing in a, in a quite visible way. At that time, there were uh, about 20, the estimate is about 20 Chicana, Chicano students here at the University of Iowa. Uh, the next year through student organizing, that number went up to, uh, I believe it's 28 in 1971. Um, and, uh, and by the time the university actually starts counting, 1978, uh, there are 79 students here, which represent about a half a percent, 79 undergraduates, which represent about a half a percent of the undergraduate student population. Um, the Latina, Latino population in the state as a whole at that point, well, in 1980, uh, is about 0.9%. Right. And by that point, it's 0.7 percent of the student of the undergraduate population here. Right. So I, I tell this in part to kind of demonstrate that from the beginning of the, the evidence that we have. Right. Students at the University of Iowa have, have always been underrepresented. Uh, and I worry that in the present moment, uh, people might try to say, no, look, we're recruiting people at a rate that's higher than the state numbers right now. To, uh, and that's like, you know, that's sort of true, but also not true once you start digging into those data. So the current academic year, and we're fast forwarding now <laughs> many years, um, the student population is around 7.9% right now, which is actually, you know, quite excellent, right? Yeah, I mean, we've come a long way. And really, the, the period from 2010 to 2014 was the greatest period of growth at the University of Iowa, right? So it's like after uh, the cluster hires that happen in the late, you know, the late aughts, uh, you know, before and during the kind of Midwest thing, there's sort of, there seems to be an awareness of the importance of recruiting uh, Latino, Latino students to the University of Iowa. Um, again, that always lags behind the state numbers as a whole. And we get to, to, to last year with 7.8%, this year with 7.9%. And that seems good because the numbers tell us that Iowa is 6.2% Latino. Right. But when you break it down and look at college age students, 18 to 24 years old, well, that's 8.5 percent of the state population. Right. Uh, and really, it was only in the last couple of years that Iowa started recruiting Latino students at a higher rate from within the state than outside of the state. So it was just, I think, a couple of years ago that we crossed that 50% line where half of the, the, roughly half of the Latino, Latino, Latinx students at the university, new students at the university are coming from the state of Iowa. Um, and so there still is, like, there, there still is, like, cause for concern. There still is a sense in which uh, we have to be aware of the ways in which, right, Latino, Latino students remain 
underrepresented. And when we start talking about faculty, that's where the story gets really bleak, right? Because as a whole in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, at least, it's about 3%, uh, about 3% Latino, Latino faculty. In terms of how many of those people actually teach Latino, Latino, Latinx studies courses, well, <laughs> there's the three of us here. Uh, and t- I'm talking about tenure track faculty. There's the three of us here. And there's one, two, uh, two others who aren't here. Two? right now yes <laughs> yeah I, I, that's, we're still, yeah, that's we're, a fair we're, number. we're still counting on one hand so, right. so you said three percent daryl three <coughs> percent yeah so that's what about that works out to be about 15 faculty members total or so math 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 right <laughs> so you I, know, for, I, for, yeah. I forget the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's 12 i think it was 12, it was 12 yeah 12, yeah. 12 13 somewhere yeah. around there yeah um and so like that's like you know the evidence is pretty good right that uh, and we can come, you know, we, we know that, that although we recruit at these high, num- high numbers, we don't graduate at these high numbers. We don't retain students at these high numbers. Uh, and I think, you know, part of that, the reason for that, part of that story lies in that disconnect between the number of Latina, Latina, Latinx students and the number of faculty, right? We know from years of evidence in, in higher edu- years of scholarship in higher education that uh, when students see themselves at the front of the classroom, when they see themselves uh, as, as kind of in meaningful positions at the university, they're more likely to succeed when they don't than when they don't. Um, and so, like, we have to have that in mind because I think that uh, one of the other things that we know at a place like Iowa is that Change happens when students speak up, right? When students have the spaces to speak up and when they have the resources uh, in terms of like the intellectual resources, the political resources to be able to speak up, right? I mean, that's what, you know, that's what what really helped get Latino Latino studies minor in place was after all this great stuff happening and after this increase in students on campus, students saying, Hey, like we like we need to be seen and heard, um, and we need to be taken seriously in the curriculum of this university, right? Um, and that's and 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 that's the story of how change has happened all along the way, right? Since 1970, here at the university, right, which makes coursework in Latino Latino studies, I think, particularly important. Um, you know, because at this point in time, at least, right. 90% of our students are underrepresented minority students. 88% of them are Latino, Latino students at, in, in the Latino, Latino studies minor. Um, I think, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm the director of the program, so of course I'm going to say this. I think every student should be minoring in Latino, Latino studies, right? Uh, because, you know, as I forget who it was at our at our opening conference, uh, was it was it some, was it Sampaio or was it or was it Eb- or was it Martinez Ebers who said something like, um, you know, you, you need to know this stuff so you don't so you don't so you don't like make a huge mistake and look stupid right at some point. So you don't like say something that's like who was it Sampaio? Yeah, like you need to you need to have knowledge in this area when you're going out into the world because if you're going to be you know. You're going to be a CEO of a corporation, right? You don't want to lose that role and and ruin your company because you said something completely historically inaccurate and just like dumb about you know people who are 
pretty sizable percentage of the population in the country and in the state and in the surrounding states as well. So for me, I think a, a key part of, uh, of, of any kind of curriculum in Latino Latino studies uh, requires like doing the work to, uh, to provide those resources for students to be able to, uh, to engage each other and engage the like institutional structures at the university. Yeah. I mean, I think when I'm, so I teach, as I said earlier, all of my classes count towards the minor, but among those classes, I also teach the, the one required course, which is the intro to Latina, Latino, Latinx studies, um, class. And when I designed that course, um, I, my research came into mind in the sense of space and the importance of space to, to tell certain stories. Um, Part of what I've made sure to include within um, the syllabus is stuff on the cultural center, right? And the emergence of the cultural center as this important space. It's not one that just sort of happened or that the institution was like, here, you can have this, right? But it's one in which there was lots of student activism around there. Um, and, and even thinking about the location of it and how that's changed and what that means for the visibility or invisibility of particular uh, groups of students um, to campus. Along those same lines, it's very important for me to highlight the emergence of Latina Latino studies, um, again, as something that just wasn't some given by the institution, um, but something that was very much fought for. Um, and I kind of joke with them that I'm like, all right, I'm not, I'm not trying to start any riots or revolutions, just giving you this information um, and, you know. Go, do with it what you will. Um, but I think a part of it is, again, informing folks that that change does happen um, when you see yourself as as a stakeholder within the institution and wanting to make those changes to make it better, not only for yourself, but for future folks that are going to be coming into campus. Um, and so I think about that very much in terms of empowering students about the fact that not only um, have They've been here for quite some time, um, but also thinking about Latina, Latino, Latinx populations that have historically been in Iowa um, also since, you know, 18th century. So taking students over to the um, Mujeres Latinas project as well, um, which, again, another shout out to Omar, because <laughs> he told me about that when I came to campus for the campus visit. Um, and um, just being able to, again, expose students to that information, I think, is is so valuable. I've had students in the past who have gone on um, to do uh, volunteer internships with them and now are including that within um, dissertation projects who have decided to go on to, to graduate school. Um, and even thinking about presence, I'm teaching a graduate course this semester and in conversation they kind of mentioned like you know you're the first Latina I've ever had as, as a professor in general since or as a teacher since like grade school to to graduate school um, <coughs> which to me again as someone who grew up in Los Angeles was just so so strange right and even thinking of like I'm the representative okay that's not a lot of weight on my shoulders <laughs> let's make sure I don't mess this up <laughs> um, but yeah it's it's been um, a, quite an interesting experience and thinking about the different types of Latinidades um, that are also present here. That's the other thing that I want to mention. Um, I think, again, coming from the West Coast, I was very used to Mexican-American um, identity around me. And and that's just, that was my experience of Latinidad, right? And coming to the Midwest as a graduate student and now as a faculty member here in Iowa, um, it's, it's so cool to really think about 
just how diverse the classroom is when we're talking about Latinidades, right? Um, and what it means for me to really be able to to speak to those different types of um, backgrounds within the classroom space um, and how much I've learned from it in process as well. So I do think that that's, that's also something that's very unique um, to, to teaching Latina Latino studies here in the Midwest. Yeah. I mean, sort of like building on all this stuff, it strikes me that there's a couple different themes that are emerging. I mean, one is the role of Latino cities for Latino students, right? One is the role for Latino students, for non-Latino students, for white students here. And then sort of one thing that's sort of getting implied, but I think we can also tackle a little bit more directly, is the role of it for the institution as just a viable entity as a, you know, in some ways, you know, like a, a physically viable entity. And so, you know, I think that I've had sort of differing experiences with all of those uh, sort of different facets. I mean, you know, typically when I teach those, when I teach my classes, um, my teaching portfolio has evolved a lot over the, the, the years I've been here. I said at the beginning, I was a really good assistant professor of political science. That meant that I taught a lot of just sort of generic political science courses as part of it. And as the university has begun to push uh, for a greater uh, uh, listing of, of courses that hit on issues of diversity and inclusion, my portfolio has really gotten sort of inverted to the point of like 75% if my portfolio is some kind of diversity and inclusion related course. Maybe a course in Latino studies, other political science courses that hit on, hit on these topics and therefore draw sort of different student bodies. Uh, and so I, but since I don't use like intro to Latino studies, I have a course, which is still usually pre predominantly white. And so you end up in a kind of situation in which you're either exposing this material to a, pre a predominantly white course, or in some cases, uh, a, a very bifurcated co co uh, course. So, you know, a classroom that's maybe 30% Latino, 60%, 70%, not that good at math, apparently, uh, uh, white and so those create sort of very uh, sort of different uh, dynamics as well and i think it's sort of very important for uh white students uh non you know non-tito students but uh given our student demographics prim primarily white students to be exposed to issues related to latino studies but there's also a very different dynamic that occurs when they're in a classroom you know, a classroom of 40 that has 12 Latino students, that creates an incredibly different dynamic because now there's not now there's a group of people that are sort of engaging them in, in, in conversation and sort of like validating each other's perspectives in a lot of ways. And so creating that, creating courses that can produce that student body composition to produce that dynamic, I think is, is one of those things that really benefit, you know, again, the, the sort of the, the non-Latino and, and the white students increase the sort of cultural competency that uh, Daryl was alluding to at the beginning. And then, of course, obviously, you know, I think it goes without saying the value of that space uh, for Latino students. The other issue that we sort of were bringing up there is the idea of it's important for the institution, not just for the students that are in, in the institution, but for the institution to begin with, right? So you talk about sort of the, the differing recruitment. Uh, you know, one of the issues that we're really getting at here is continuing to maintain and grow the student body given the significant pressures that uh, the institution is facing. You know, it's historically tried to manage its student body by increasing recruitment from others from surrounding states. So other universities have made that increasingly uh, made that market increasingly competitive. It's tried to expand its student body by getting more international students, but for a variety of reasons, there's sort of a natural limit to that. And so what it needs to do is sort of be 
be more competitive at recruiting students in state who have a profile which is hasn't traditionally been sort of seen as the type of student that, that go that goes to college right or is it necessarily is college ready and so being able to go and make those students uh see iowa as a viable option right and uh you know it's something that the institution has to get increasingly better about right and our program i think is situated to help them in that regard as well yeah it's great you okay adiana i i am <laughs> got a cough drop got some water i'm good <laughs> Um, so like, you know, in the, in the time that remains, I'd like for us each to like talk about kind of one thing that we've done or that, that we have planned to do, um, that I think is a, you know, a unique strategy or assignment or something that kind of meets the goals and expectations that we've been talking about. And I can go first, um, if you, unless you want to go first. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, uh, so I'm going to be teaching uh, – right now I teach a course called Intro to Latina, Latino, Latinx Communication and Culture. Um, and it's kind of a broad – it's a communication studies-oriented uh, Latina, Latino, Latinx studies course. Um, it's a course that is, that's, in, that's in the communication studies department where most of my appointment is um, – uh, but I'm designing a course that I've taught a version of before, just not here. And I'm excited to be, to be teaching it here starting next spring. And that's a Latina, Latino, Latinx movement protest and resistance course. Um, and so, you know, in that class, we're going to look, you know, we're going to take a kind of like pretty big perspective, but really focus on, you know, probably mostly focus on 1960s to the present, uh, in part because uh, that's where a, a, a lot of my expertise lies uh, in research on the young lords in Chicago and in New York, mostly New York. Um, but also because I think that that maps onto the kind of story of uh, Latina, Latina, Latinx folks here at Iowa. Uh, and so, you know, I want to take a kind of broad national focus and hit the, you know, hit the big ones, right? Talk about the young lords in New York and in Chicago. Uh, talk about the you know, various kind of Chicano, Chicano movement uh, activism, uh, student activism. Uh, but I also want to do, my plan is to do a, a, a significant unit on the University of Iowa. Uh, and, and part of this comes out of, in talking to my students in the communication and culture course that I'm teaching right now, they, they know like bits and pieces of the history of, uh, of, of, of Latinos at Iowa. Uh, but there's, you know, in, in kind of doing some, some archival research, I'm realizing there's so much more to this history uh, that people just don't know about. Like just how, uh, how in in today's parlance, how woke the students were, right at the university in 1970, right? The kinds of activism uh, that they were doing is like was like pretty radical, like much more radical than people usually think of when they think of Iowa, like nice, calm, everyone getting along, Iowa. Uh, and so to kind of like sh- you know break up some of those expectations, one of the things that I uh, that I plan to do is uh, is have students engage in. Archival research. Part of this dealing with the you know, could be related to the Mujeres Latinas project um, in the Iowa Women's Archive. Uh, but another great resource that we have is all of the daily Iowa newspapers are available, full text, digitized, OCR'd uh, online, with like some okay search features. Like you can search Chicano. 
right, which was the term that was used the most in the 1970s and see all the different kinds of things that are going on, whether that's cultural events or like students doing like on the ground, like joining in on the lettuce boycotts, for example, uh, and what that kind of activism meant at the University of Iowa. Uh, so uh, so that's the that's the kind of like big ex- assignment that I'm excited that I'm really excited to do for that class is get everyone's attention turned to uh, something about you know either the University of Iowa or the state of Iowa uh, in this period in like the 60s and especially the 1970s uh, and to try to recover some of this history I mean part of this for me comes from uh, the great work that's been done in uh, in history by people like Maylee Blackwell uh, her work on uh, on Chicana feminists uh, and this idea that she uh, that she has uh, that she calls retrofitted memory, uh, and it's important to kind of be able to uh, to recuperate stories from the past. And to be able to fit those into a kind of model of meaning making, because those are the kinds of resources that both inspire people to act today and provide them with the kinds of intellectual resources and the political resources to be able to take action in the here and now. Right. Not to say that everyone has to go out and like, you know, protest the, you know, the this seems to be another running thread then protest revolution. <laughs> It's the theme of the class. I'm not right. advocating right, the revolution. Neither, I'm not either, right? It, you know, it's it's not it's not my fault if the if the facts and the available evidence lend themselves to revolutionary ideas. You are there to provide information. I'm just right? I'm I'm exactly. I'm merely the yes. I'm just I'm providing them with with historical facts and documents, uh, and what they do with that is up to them. None of this is coming from the political scientists. There's a divide at the table. So that's the that that's the basic idea for this uh, for this assignment that I'm that I'm already starting to think about, even though it's over a year away at this point. But um, so I guess I'll I'll go next, um, and I'm going to pick up on the Maylie Blackwell reference as well. Um, and take it back to the Latina, Latino, Latinx studies intro course. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, space is, is an important component to, um, to that course. Um, in the last iteration of the course, I had them read um, a chapter from, from Maylee Blackwell's text where she's looking at, um, among various things, uh, print culture. Um, because I wanted us to think about this as a space where one can can write themselves um, and their existence and their history. Um, and so as part of the larger course um, at the end of the semester, we and during that time we also spend some time with zines, which should not be surprising for lots of people in the audience who have now read lots of things <laughs> about me writing about zines. Um, so zines as these self-published magazines. Um, so... Again, thinking about it as a space for Chicana Latina feminists um, who are writing their existence, queer identities as well, um, things of that nature. And so at the end of the semester, what I have the class do um, is we create a collective zine. So everyone is responsible for coming in with 
one page, eight and a half by 11, um, where they take one of the issues that we've discussed throughout the semester. Um, and it could be personal. It could be them sort of thinking through um, a particular article or a theme for the course. But I, I want them to creatively produce um, one page that will go into, as I said, this collective zine. Um, so the last day of class, we all sit around in a circle. Um, we talk about what they brought in. They talk about its connections to the course content. Um, a lot of the times it's connections also to their own personal lives. Um, there have been uh, pictures of family and um, their history here in Iowa. Uh, there have been poetry, paintings, like just anything you can think of. I had uh, one student who it was their one page, but you opened it up and it brought up um, sort of different images underneath cutouts of um, from other courses that he'd taken with me. So stuff on like uh, Los Vendidos and what that means in terms of his identity and belonging. Um, so reference to to um, Luis Valdez's work. Um, and so it's just really great to think about it, how they can they can address these really heavy topics creatively, but also bring it together as a class. And so what I do is I'll scan everyone's um, contribution and I'll upload it onto our um, icon page so that everyone has access to it. Along with that, they also have to do um, a two to three page paper where they are thinking analytically about, okay, these are the things that I um, included on my page and this is why I was doing this and this is how it connected to other things that may not quite seem apparent on the page itself. But I've found that it creates a sense of community. Um, it creates a sense of really bringing these, again, hard topics that you may think no one has connections to, but all of a sudden there you're seeing it on paper um, and a real sense of intimacy as well. So just thinking about some of the poems um, that, that students have contributed, as I was um, photocopying the, the last section to scan it onto Icon, I had a colleague who came in and, and started reading one of the poems and she just started crying. And I'm like, it's okay, what's going on? She's like, "This, I just, I can't believe that they're putting this on paper. Um, and so the fact that they're putting it on paper and that they're circulating it um, with one another as well, I, I think is is very important. Um, and and this is after like a semester of making them do critical response papers and exams and, and all of the things that are required from, um, you know, uh, this type of class, but really thinking about, well, can we move beyond that and how can um, we connect to one another? Um, I do this big spiel at the end of the semester that I, I think I say as much for them, but as much for me as when I, when I was an undergrad student, which is we've sat here for 16 weeks. We've talked through these ideas. Um, we've shared with one another. If you see, you know, one of your, one of your peers as you're walking, you know, between buildings, say hi, like just, just even a head nod um, because it makes a difference. And so thinking about the space is not only, them talking to me, but them talking to each other collectively um, has been a, a major project that I would say um, has been important uh, within the the class for me. That's an awesome assignment, Thanks. by the way. I really appreciate want... it. Uh, it really is. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, in some ways, these are much more developed pedagogies than I think I'm currently working with. Um, and I think part of it is the different sort of roles of, of our teaching portfolios right now. I mentioned that earlier that a lot of my teaching has gone into these uh, more diversity and inclusion courses. Um, so, you know, sort of like introductory gen ed diversity and inclusion courses is now like 50 to 75% of my teaching portfolio. 
Um, and there it's very much in some ways, well, it's large. So, you know, I'm dealing with, um, 75 to 100 students, uh, just different dynamic, um, primarily non, uh, political science majors, not, you know, ne- not necessarily people working even in social sciences or the humanities. Right. So you have the like first, first year chem major who, who needs this gen ed credit. And there it's really more of a frontline battle of trying to get like very sort of basic ideas accepted, right? Uh, ideas like um, race is important, you know, it's okay to city race. It's not inherently problematic to city race. Ideas like colorblindness aren't necessarily the normative gold standard, right? Um, and, you know, I sort of start the course with a very what is usually heard is very aggressive statement. It's political science, of course. So there's a lot of, of, of rural uh, emphasis of, of the government and state. And I say something like, you know, this course is, is in some ways about how the state is an agent of white supremacy. And that sounds really inflammatory, but after 16 weeks of carefully documenting, after explaining exactly what I mean by that, right? I don't mean that as a like amorphous, ambiguous phrase. I mean something very concrete. I mean that the state sort of like, takes material, non-material resources and it redistributes them in a way which is not equitable across all races and in which communities of color receive less of those resources than than, than white communities. And after engaging in how those examples play out in housing, education, um, um, you know, uh, criminal justice policy, immigration policy, all these different contexts, I think the case is, pre- is pretty clear. But that sounds like a very aggressive statement. And then trying to get students to sort of see how that very aggressive statement is is true and this is where like the social science comes in right where i really lean on the idea as true in a non-subjective sort of way true by various sort of like objective understandings you know as as best as we can ascertain them and you know that also creates like pedagogically i think these these dynamics are also very different in the social sciences right because it's you know what we're you're leaning against that a lot as you meet a lot of resistance in in the course you're leaning against the idea of this isn't a subjective assessment right like this is like you know i um, that redlining exists was not a subjective assessment that there are that the the k through 12 the elementary K through 12 institutions are in various parts of the country more segregated today than they were pre-Brown. It's not a subjective statement, right? And so I think that sort of like really leverages a lot of that, that, that creates a lot of buy-in, I guess, in, in, amongst some of those students as they see that uh, in that, in that, you know, in that more, they, they see it as being sort of verified by these, uh, by this type of, of data, whether the data be, be, what we typically think of as data as quantitative or whether that data be just like historical information, uh, ethnographic information, right? Just other, other sources uh, of, of information. But that's again, a sort of like pedagogically, I think sort of a, a very different thing, but it's good that we have this diversity in, in, amongst us and amongst our course offerings. And I think it links back to what we're talking about earlier is the role of the program in the service to different constituencies in the service to constituencies, to the Latino student constituency and in creating space and in, and in creating community, Right. And then the program as a service to the broader institution, to non-Latino students, to white to white students as a constituency and helping us sort of inform and educate that population as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I think we're basically about out of time. So we're going to close this down and then open things up for Q&A. Uh, please, you know, we, 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 
we'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, about this episode or any of our episodes of the podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter at uh, at Imagining Lat for the podcast, and you can also shoot us an email email at podcast at imaginingLatinidades dot com. Uh, please share this podcast with friends, as I always request, or one of us always requests, um, and. When I, when I stoop really low, please give us five-star ratings right. on Apple Podcasts uh, because those ratings help to expose us to a wider group of people and give us a chance of maybe making it on uh, one of those uh, curated lists that Apple does. Um, all that said, thanks so much for listening in. Uh, thank you all here uh, with us today for, uh, for being here. So please check, please check the show notes for uh, all the links and sites of things that we've been talking about uh, today. And uh, yeah, th- thanks again for listening.